0: We're going to talk about Godzilla Minus One, (laughs) but I have a fun scenario for you because when Godzilla Minus One dropped and people saw it and saw this movie that is about Japanese society's PTSD and it embodies that extreme PSD in one man struggle who seems to be stuck in a Sisyphean cycle of perpetual large-scale trauma. And then... When that movie came out, immediately the trailer for the next Godzilla movie, Godzilla X-Kong or Kong X-Godzilla, dropped. And it's like the American response was, I got you. Have you ever seen Rush Hour 2? Yeah, stupid. So, and I like it. I'm not I'm not opposed to whatever's going to be happening in Godzilla X-Kong because it looks like a lot of fun. The same fun that made uh, Godzilla vs. Kong work for me. Like, you take those characters and you make them the main character. You make them actual characters. I never felt like Godzilla was an actual character, but Kong was definitely a character in Godzilla vs. Kong. He was Bruce Willis, the uh, I'm-too-old-for-this-shit kind of guy. Danny Glover, like your harried everyman, just trying to make it through. And... That was novel for that film. I appreciated it. But that is not at all what Godzilla Minus One is. Godzilla Minus One is a completely different thing because Japanese storytelling, Japanese media is a completely different thing. And it kind of starts with Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla is a real movie about real stuff. It's not just an entertainment piece. It's about the failure of bureaucracy and how ridiculous bureaucracy is. And it also has this demonic monster Godzilla that is more alien than prehistoric and really horrifying and has the best atomic breath scene of all time. So you start with that as a template for going different. And then Godzilla Minus One extends on that as a template for doing something different. Godzilla Minus One is also a quote-unquote real movie it's a real movie it's like the piano or i don't know born on the fourth of july or something and then godzilla happens to be in the background of the movie it's dealing with some tough stuff and it does it very well now there is a little bit of a disconnect because japanese style storytelling is different it's it the qualities of it are just different and that's fine. It works here. It kind of It's kind of like anime storytelling. A little bit overwrought in places, kind of like uh, soap opera storytelling with uh, fantasy action. That's kind of what anime storytelling is. But it works, and it's different than the other things that we've experienced domestically in the genre. So it makes it very interesting. And as I said before, it's the story of national PTSD. The minus one is supposed to be that Japan has just taken its biggest defeat with the dropping of the nuclear war sorry the atomic weapons on Nagasaki and Hiroshima and this is directly post World War II like it's at zero and the threat of Godzilla takes a Japan that is almost completely annihilated and takes it to the minus 1 stage of uh of the Sisyphean struggle that was Japan in those days. Like a lot of it takes place in ruins, like the main character lives inside of ruins. And so uh, the the found family that he brings on, even amid his struggles, uh, he raises this family inside of the ruins in which he exists, in which Japan exists. And it's heavy and well done. There are a bunch of detractions I have for the film, but I've seen it twice, and they all kind of fall away over the course of time. Like, it's an homage to a bunch of different films that are, like, all crowd-pleasers. There's people who have pointed out Jaws as an inspiration, and, like, uh, Spielbergian inspiration from uh, beyond Jaws, like maybe Indiana Jones or something. Uh, Dunkirk has been mentioned as an inspiration. There's definitely a, a Dunkirk homage to that. Uh, Something I found in the second viewing is that ID4 is definitely an inspiration because there's a vein in Asian movies that does not quite exist as a through line in domestic movies about everybody working together to accomplish a common goal. You see it in stuff like The Wandering Earth. Um, And there was another, not Japanese, but a Chinese movie I saw recently that doesn't come to mind. The title doesn't come to mind. That is about that, it's about everybody coming together to accomplish the common goal, not about the star saving everyone. And in this case, that works really well. You are introduced to some very uh, charming characters who in the end all have a part in the uh, the end strategy to defeat Godzilla, um, whether it's literally or emotionally, and all of that works. One thing that is very strange to me that kind of doesn't work for me. Like you get over it. And you just you feel that the lead actor is a very good actor. He's he has enough uh, on-screen presence and charisma to carry the day, and enough. <laughs> he's a good enough actor to convey the trauma that he's feeling. You can feel this trauma through him. But his role calls him on him to be hysterical a number of times, to be in basically in tears, like inconsolable. And the actor's face does not convey that for most of those scenes, and he never cries. He is unable to cry, like not even like a little bit. His eyes don't even get red. And that is super noticeable to me. And in the second viewing, I was like, well, maybe... That will soften among the other things that soften in a second viewing because that is often what happens for most movies in a second viewing. And no, it is still very noticeable to me that the lead actor is unable to cry. He still kills it. The support actors, like I said, are all great. There's a, a, a love interest who is not... It's interesting because the love interest is very chaste in a domestic situation, which you kind of feel is going to be part of this story. I guess I've seen enough anime to know how this works, but basically he takes on, uh, in, the, in the process of war, everybody's home gets destroyed, and this woman is no different. Her family is killed by bombing. Her home is destroyed, and... She finds a woman who is dying with a baby in her arms and takes the baby uh, at the woman's request. And so the lead brings on this woman and this baby, who is not this woman's baby, to live in his home because they have nowhere else to go. And he is suffering from the most extreme kind of guilt because he's a kamikaze pilot who uh, shirked his responsibility. He did not kill himself He did not kill himself for the greater good of Japan. What no reviews I've seen talk about uh, in this case is that the, the lead is not just a coward. The character is not just a coward. Like, people die because of him, but he's not only a coward. His parents specifically asked him to survive the war. I guess maybe not knowing that he was a kamikaze pilot or whatever, but that kind of affects his uh, his motivations. Like he also freezes a, a couple times in the face of uh, danger. So he is also a coward, but it's not just that he is a coward. Um, these are not simple uh, archetypal or stereotypical characters. These are people. This is the story of people. This is actually what separates this movie from the other Godzilla movies. Because there are people in other Godzilla movies, and sometimes they're about those people. But rarely are they effective. Like in the American uh, legendary Godzilla series, there has not been a character introduced that was not King Kong that I gave a rat's ass about. I don't care about anybody in any of those movies. Um, Not even the little girl who's who's Kong's motivation in... uh, in Godzilla minus Kong, I'm sorry, <laughs> Godzilla versus Kong, the conflation, the conflation. There's so many Godzilla movies. Not even the little girl uh, is a character I care about. I care about the fact that Kong cares about the little girl, but she's just a tool. There's a tool like that in Godzilla minus one. Actually, a a, a small child who's really too young to contribute to the narrative directly, other than as an emotional prop, but. She's not really somebody that you can care about other than as an emotional prop, and that's how she's used in the movie. She doesn't really have a part in the movie other than to be a prop. The real emotional driver is his guilt over several things. If I talk about it too much, when I talk about movies in this context, I don't want to give away too much of the plot. So I usually don't do like a narrative breakdown of the movie, and I don't want to give away too much, but it's like... Like I said, a Sisyphean experience. due to piling loss on top of loss, on top of guilt, on top of more guilt. And doing it in a beautiful, lush movie. Like, the press was like, about this movie, was that the movie cost $15 million and it looks amazing for a $15 million movie. And it does. It looks great. The lead director... And I don't have the information. For, I'm in. A, I'm in my car right now, recording this, trying to bang out an episode before the end of the year. So this is completely off the cuff, completely impromptu. Like I don't even know if this is just going to be a Godzilla minus one episode, or if this is going to be a potpourri episode that I like to do, where I just jam a bunch of different, disparate topics into one episode. No idea. But per the lead creator slash director, this was not a $15 million movie. It's like, I would have loved to have a $15 million budget. That was not at all how this panned out, which is interesting. It makes me wonder what the actual budget was, because the budget for Shin Godzilla in 2016 was also a $15 million. And with inflation, that's not the same as a $15 million movie in 2023, And the movie wasn't even $15 million, and as I said, it looks great. It looks better than some movies do for much more money. Like, artistically, it looks better than a lot of movies do in the modern time. Uh, More considered. But effects-wise, I actually don't think it looks better than the legendary movies, which are expensive and lush. Like, the... The staging of things may look better, but the animated characters themselves, the CGI Godzilla, the CGI sets look good, but they don't look better. They don't look more expensive than the things from the legendary movies. Like when you see these CGI creatures from the animated movies, they're not beholding to a certain sensibility, so... For instance, in Godzilla Minus One, one of the first things I noticed was that some of the uh, extra shots looked really funky, like an homage to an older kind of Godzilla movie on a soundstage, Uh, and they looked not great. Um, Whereas if you did those same shots in in a uh, more expensive movie, you'd CGI more of it, and you might complain about the CGI, but it would look better. Uh, Also, the Godzilla monster itself, people are praising the presentation of Godzilla, and the presentation is great, but also it is beholden to an older style of Godzilla. As was the CGI Shin Godzilla, it kind of moves like a guy in a rubber suit. It looks great, but in motion it's not always entirely convincing, like for the legendary versions of the monsters, and I've been watching a lot of old Godzilla films generally, like actual rubber-suited guys. Um, after seeing the legendary movies, they're not as fun to watch because the everything is obviously artificial, and that can be fun. The level of creativity achieved under the the circumstance of not having as many resources in itself is a joy to see on screen. But ultimately, it's still not quite the same. It it looks like something that is cheaper. And in this case, it looks like more than a $15 million movie. It looks like, I don't know, a $50 million movie, a $70 million movie with no stars so that you don't have to pay anybody's uh, ridiculous um, salary because of their their name uh, that they bring to the movie or whatever. But to me, as far as the advancement has as advanced as advanced as the effects can be, uh, Godzilla minus one doesn't quite accomplish that for me. But presentationally, I do like the presentation better. Same with Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla, uh, some of the effect scenes because this is many years ago now. God, it is. Shin Godzilla. Uh, as far as an effects presentation, the creativity of how they did their Godzilla is incredible. But when you open up the shot and it's not at night anymore, it looks funky. Um, especially early on, it's almost unacceptable. There's a salamander form for that Godzilla that, uh, looks ridiculous. It's got googly eyes for some reason. It looks terrible, but the design of the, uh, Phase four, I think, the adult, the actual familiar Godzilla in that movie is mm, chef's kiss. And same with Godzilla minus one. The presentation, actually, at the beginning of the movie, too, there's a an unmutated dinosaur Godzilla that's presented that looks great. And then once you see Godzilla in Tokyo, he once again looks great. Probably the best looking version. If you're just talking about uh, standstill, look at it. Um, version of Godzilla that we've ever had. Like, I think it looks better than legendary Godzilla. And it looks more like Godzilla than Shin Godzilla. Shin Godzilla looks like um, a tangent, like a side story, like a, like Godzilla Gaiden. Like, what if Godzilla was infected by the spirits of hell or something? So that... And the aesthetic, the presentation of the spectacle is the thing that's most important to me for seeing something in the movie. So that is important to me. And the spectacle is done well. Speaking of, the music in Godzilla Minus One is off the chain. So a common thing that you see or hear in big budget movies of the type that Godzilla Minus one is, is that you will take a track, and the first time I noticed this was um Basil Paul Doris's score for Conan the Barbarian. Every track on that score is is an homage to a uh like a twentieth century uh piece of classical music, like a famous twentieth century piece of classical music. Like Bolero is in there. There's a version that is an homage to Bolero is the one that sticks out the most. But they're all like um I had uh, a couple cassettes back in the day that were collections of uh, 20th century classical music and probably heard half of Conan's soundtrack represented in that. And in this movie, in Godzilla Minus One, there is an homage to my favorite piece of classical music of all time, which is Goreski's Third Symphony, the Symphony of Sorrowful Songs. Like, it, it got me. It got me. It made me feel something in a movie that was already making me feel something. Well done. Very effective. And then there's a track at the end of the movie called Resolution that I've been playing on repeat for weeks. So, yeah, effective all around. Godzilla Minus One may not be my favorite movie of the year. It, it may be, actually. Like, the first time I saw it, probably not. Second time, it's up there. Like, I think that my movie of the year will probably end up being Oppenheimer. Because I feel like Nolan accomplished something extraordinary with that film, which is that it's just, it's a drawing room drama, but with Nolan's cinematic sensibilities. So it feels big, the sound is big, the shots are dramatic, even though they're just big faces on screen most of the time. The presentation is dramatic. And for me, that is what is missing... From a lot of films that people are like, you need to see this in the theater because it's cinema. But the presentation of that lacks spectacle for a lot of things. It lacks a cinematic quality where uh, I feel like I need to see it on the big screen. I can see most of those things, most of those things that are like um, cinephile worthy on the small screen. and be fine with that. Oppenheimer is something that needs to be seen on the big screen. Same deal as uh, the the most recent Avatar. Like, it's something that... Of course it does. It's it's inherently a spectacle movie, but that is what a movie theater experience is for me. It needs to be that. Like, I saw Killers of the Flower Moon in the theater. Fantastic movie. Three and a half hours of... (sighs) flat tonality. Like... It's about stupid, dumb, evil people being stupid, dumb, and evil and committing a genocide, really. But the feeling from beginning to end is, is almost exactly the same. Even when you hit the climax and conclusion, there is a sameness to the depressing, kind of disconcerting feeling of being in their world. You feel icky all the way through for three and a half hours. And it's well done. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And there's some beautiful shots in there that are like, oh, this is cinematic. But most of it is just gray rooms of yucky people being yucky. And I didn't need to see it in the theater. For something like that, I could have easily seen it as a miniseries or anything else. But Godzilla Minus One... And you're like, oh, it's a Godzilla movie. Of course it's cinematic. Yeah, probably. Not necessarily, but in this case, definitely. And for under $15 million, that is something special. First viewing, I was like, man, I like this movie, but I don't know. And then I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I was like, man, I really like this movie. After my second viewing, I love it. I love Godzilla Minus One. And it's an experience that I recommend that everybody have. Like, it's hard to get people to watch foreign movies. Either there's a cultural unfamiliarity, there's no point of reference. Uh, in this case, there is a point of reference. Everybody knows who Godzilla is, and this is 100% worth your time. If you're just a casual moviegoer, not even a cinephile, just somebody who enjoys seeing movies, would not normally see a foreign movie, Godzilla minus one is the one. Kind of like the year that everybody went to see Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Now, this is not on that level. That is one of the best movies of all time. Godzilla Minus One is one of the best movies this year. It's not quite the same, but big love for it regardless. You should definitely see it. As this is my last episode of the year, and I may not even edit this, I may put it straight up, I would like to say that uh, got the movie stuff out of the way, tech stuff. Got a new smartwatch. I hadn't worn one in a while. I got it so I could start actively tracking my steps again because I used to do it back in the day, and it was really good for me. And what I got was a Fossil uh, Gen 6 Hybrid, which is a... It's in a category of watches I really call... It's not even a fitness tracker. It's. It does have fitness tracking capabilities and basic smartwatch capabilities but they're like fixed functions there's no app store for it or anything but it's a regular watch that includes these capabilities and it has an e-ink screen which is what I was looking for specifically so the battery life lasts over a week and it's a nice looking device because it's a fossil it's a watch it's a watch that just adds these abilities to an actual watch it has analog hands and I'm having a really good time with it. And it just exists in the background. Like all the extra stuff it does, I don't even care about most of that stuff. It's got like a uh, oxygen sensor on it, which uh, they stopped selling the Apple Watch for a week because they have an oxygen sensor. So it's a pretty premium feature. They had an oxygen sensor from a company that they stole the technology from and didn't license it directly. Uh, I guess these other companies do oxygen sensing a little bit differently. So, or maybe they do, maybe these other companies pay Massimo directly for the licensing, but it has an oxygen sensor. I don't use it, or I guess it does actively track my oxygen levels, and I don't know what that means, so I don't really look at it. I just got it for step tracking, so I use it for step tracking and to tell the time, uh, see what the weather is from time to time, maybe the date, and see who's calling me, and uh, that's, (laughs) that is most of it. Like, it's got Alexa I don't use the Alexa function. It's more convenient, and this is the reason I didn't wear a smartwatch for years anyway. It's more convenient just to look at your phone for any of that stuff, except for the step tracking. I like the active step tracking. So do I recommend it? Yeah, sure. It's a little expensive for something that you're just using for step tracking, but it looks nice. So I like it. The second thing is that even though I didn't need one, I jumped on the Pixel 8 train this year. Because I'd had the Pixel 6, I gave the Pixel 6 to my son, I got a Pixel 7 for myself, Pixel 7 was perfect for my needs, I didn't need to upgrade. Google came through with a huge holiday discount, plus a ridiculous trade-in offer for a very old phone that I had had to trade in my Pixel 3a, which I still used from time to time. The regular trade-in value for that was like 30 bucks, and they were offering, I think it was uh, 130 or... 120, something way more than it would have been otherwise and way more than anybody else was offering for the the uh, older phone. So I took advantage, and I basically used the motivation of getting a phone with more storage because that's usually my biggest motivator for upgrading. How can I get more storage onto this device? So I got a phone with 256 gigs of storage, which is more than the past couple phones that had 128. And that's nice. It's nice. It's nice not having to worry about managing your storage. Uh, I take a lot of pictures, not so much video, but I like to keep a lot of media local as well. And I don't use it very often, but I like to have it in a pinch. So I I keep a lot of local media, and I take a lot of pictures, so the 256 gigs was nice. It's not a huge change from the Pixel 7 as far as functionality, uh, but it is nice. And it's a lot smaller, and I didn't know that I wanted a smaller phone. But having a smaller phone is nice. Like, it's really nice. And the screen is brighter, so it kind of makes up for the fact that, like, text and print on the screen is smaller, because the screen is significantly brighter. So I'm having a good time with the 8. I don't have any real complaints about it, except uh, battery life is not a whole lot better than it was on the 7. It wasn't bad on the 7. I didn't have a bad time with it. But with the new generation of SOC, the Tensor Generation 3, uh, they went to a smaller fabrication. uh, Went from 5 nanometer to 4 nanometer for the fabrication. uh, Which basically means you can get um, more processing power for less actual power used. And it's about the same. Like, I've seen testing and people talking about it not being the same, about it being a little bit better, but for me, so far, it's been about the same. Still not bad, and beyond that, um, the the mobile antenna that the Tensor G3 uses is like um, a branch of the mobile antenna that was on the Pixel 7, and it's a little bit better. 5G works a little bit better and that was surprising to me because it's not a different antenna. It's a branch of the antenna, but yeah, 5G works a little bit better. It's still very power-hungry on 5G, not power-hungry on 4G. If you use LTE instead of uh, 5G when you're out and about, then your battery life will be respectable. It'll be an all-day phone, but if you use 5G, probably not going to be an all-day phone, and that's my only real complaint. I don't have any other complaints about the device. I think that the pixel experience is kind of a solved experience it's great like people complain about the soc and it can't do gaming as well as competitive socs probably true but i can max out the settings on everything that i play no problem no stutters nothing works great there are some um like uh, when you when you have a new soc It usually introduces like a period of time or a new device just generally introduces a period of time of settling in because Google releases their devices in beta. That effect has probably been much less than it ever has been in the past. It wasn't that bad last year with the 7, not too bad this year with the 6 or with the 8, but there is some of that. So that is something to keep in mind. But yeah, a high recommendation for the Pixel 8. It's like unspecial at this point because I've been using the new Pixel three years in a row, and they've all been great for me. I haven't had the same problems as everybody else has. There was a settling-in period for the Pixel 6 where it was kind of up and down as far as how stable the experience was. Didn't have that with the 7. 7 was good all the way through. Uh, And pretty much the same with the Pixel 8. Just great. So not like amazing, but because I've been using... The next generation of the same phone for three years. Yeah, I already know what the experience is going to be like. It's a good experience, and that's the episode. I guess it was a potpourri episode. Is there anything I want to talk about else? I want to talk about this year. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Just uh, I hope that all the people out there have a great year. Uh, I said it earlier in the year, and it turned out to be not true. But I, I still think that my other podcast is coming back. I'm hoping beyond hope that the other podcast does come back, Smack My Pitch Up, where we do uh, kind of advanced fan casting is what that show is. So not just casting, but uh, pitching alternate, uh, kind of multiverse versions of uh, popular movies, pop cultural movies. And uh, it's a really good show. Like, with some separation, going back to listen to it, sometimes Mike the Hobbit Bickett and I are inspired in pitching shows. And yeah, uh, just want to pass along love and peace to family and friends and everybody out there who is listening if you need some love and peace in your life then i hope that you get that love and peace and i guess that's it so for me to you happy new year and we'll catch in the next one thanks for listening